0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very happy to say we have Jin Feng on the show. Jin teaches at Grinnell. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And she's written a wonderful book called Tasting Paradise on Earth, Jiangnan Foodways. And we'll be talking about that in the course of the interview. Welcome to the show, Jin.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, My name is Jing Fen. I'm professor of Chinese and associate dean for faculty development and diversity, equity, and inclusion at Grinnell College, where I have been working for over two decades. I started in 2001.
0: Wow, two decades. That's a long time. How did you... uh, um, how did you make your way to Grinnell? How did you find yourself at Grinnell College?
1: Well, um, I will be honest with you. I came to Grinnell because that's what they offered. Uh, I found. <laughs> <laughs> School. <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, before I came to Grinnell, I knew a little bit about liberal arts education, but not a whole lot because I came from a background of an uh, undergraduate student in China from Fudan University, which is a big research university. Then I came to the United States for grad school. I went to Michigan, which was another big school, research university. I did teach one year at Swarthmore, so it was a similar kind of college. Then I came to Grinnell, uh, where I State ever since.
0: That's good. Was it a shock being in the middle of Iowa?
1: No, it's not so much because, you know, I went to uh, grad school in the Midwest. So yeah. I, I have been in the area. Uh, it's just I have not taught a lot, uh, you know, uh, at the liberal arts college in the Midwest.
0: Right. So, so you're an honorary Midwesterner by this point. Yes.
1: Yes. it's I like, <laughs> actually stayed longer in Iowa than anywhere else in the United States. It's half yeah. my life, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you teach at Grinnell?
1: Yes. I teach a variety of courses, including Chinese language at all levels from first year to fourth year. I also teach Chinese literature and film courses. And of course, I teach uh, Chinese food. I also team teach with colleagues, and uh, um, I've taught uh, a course on freedom and authority, uh, reproductive rights, and I've taught food courses, collaborating with other colleagues as well, which we can talk more about (laughs) as we go further.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, your book and research is about food. How did you get interested in food?
1: Well, uh, I have to say food has always been one of my passions. I just love food. Uh, I know there are two kinds of people, those who live to eat and those who eat to live. And (laughs) I think I'm uh, those who live to eat. And uh, I grew up in a region in China that's known for great food. Uh, So uh, this gets into the title of my book, Jiangnan, South of the Yangtze River. Uh, This is a region uh, historically known for uh, material wealth, uh, cultural elegance and great food, great gardens, you know, gracious living, that kind of thing. So the locals are very proud of their uh, cultural heritage of c- food connoisseurship. Of course, it has it has always been a mark of social class, you know, prestige and things like that. Uh, I will say it's part of the cultural DNA of uh, at least the elite throughout history in this region. And then, of course, you might family, everyone really loves food. Uh, We love to talk about food, we love to cook, we love to eat. And uh, uh, interestingly, the men in my family cook better than the women. (laughs) (laughs) When my parents parents first got married, my mom actually did not know how to cook. My father trained her, and then, of course, he stopped stepping into the kitchen anymore. So, yeah, so that's that's sort of the uh, personal background. Uh, Of course, I came to this book also because of professional. professional experiences. Um, I've been in the United States now for over 20 years, you know, uh, grad school and then teaching. Uh, But I go back to China every year and I really realize the great shifts in uh, cultural traditions and the social life in the last 20, 30 years in China. So I really feel the urgency to reflect on how foodways shift. You know, uh, I think they really reflect the ways of uh, Chinese people, uh, how they think about the world, how they live their lives. Uh, so um, you know, so many things have gone away already, and uh, this also gets to the topic of my book, which is about food nostalgia. So I thought it it, it really uh, needs to be recorded and and reflected upon at this uh, critical historical moment. So that's sort of the research impetus. I, I also have to say I've been teaching uh, Chinese food. Uh, for a number of years at Grinnell College. I actually started with a first-year tutorial. You are alum, so you know what that tutorial is about. It's really uh, to teach students the basic skills they would need to succeed uh, at the college level. So I chose that topic of Chinese food uh, in 2002, actually my second year at Grinnell College. So I thought it would be a relatable topic. You know, people can have some fun. Very relatable. Yes. <laughs> 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 well, well, they learned those basic stuff, right? And then uh, after that, I also designed uh, a seminar uh, called uh, Chinese Food for Thought, which I taught a number of times uh, over the years. And I mentioned, uh, maybe I have not, but uh, in 2017, I actually team up with a Russian specialist, uh, Professor Todd Armstrong. Uh, this was a... Um, global uh, tutorial, uh, the global learning tutorial, part of our global engagement initiative. So as uh, part of that uh, course, we actually took 15 first-year students to China and Russia uh, each for two weeks, uh, you know, each for four cities, basically, uh, in addition to classroom instruction, you know, assignment and so on and so forth. So that was also uh, another way to, you know, uh, to think about Chinese food, to look how Chinese Chinese food uh, changed abroad. So, um, you know, as a side note, it's one of my uh, pet projects to check out every Chinatown when I go abroad. uh, including in the United States, of course, as well. And the most recently during the pandemic, I actually taught Chinese food for thought online in fall, no, spring 2001. And uh, students were quite resourceful, actually. A group of them came up with a cookbook using Grinnell ingredients to cook Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> and just last fall, we taught uh, a group of uh, East Asian specialists here uh, on campus. Uh, we taught Uh, food in East Asia, of course. So my colleague in Japanese, uh, Marie Koshimau, and I uh, were the uh, 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 co-instructors, but we invited people in uh, religion, East Asian religion, uh, art history, education, literature, history, to come in as guest speakers to explore East Asian food from a variety of perspectives and, and disciplines. So that was actually a lot of fun, too. So another different way of engaging with Chinese food.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a a fantastic course of study. I'm kind of envious.
1: Well, <laughs>
0: yeah, I bet you did. Um, I, I'm a historian, and uh, most of my reference points for trying to understand something like this have to do with Russia, where I've spent quite a bit of time, and I know the history well. And one of the things that I noticed when the Soviet Union fell. Um, is that there was a tremendous efflorescence of russian food because the soviets had tried to produce a kind of proletarian culture that was almost intentionally anti- haute cuisine like they didn't like they didn't like right, fancy right, right. food fancy right. food was bad it was politically right, right, right. marked as evil somehow
1: right right right
0: and i assume a similar thing happened in china under mao is that right
1: it's- that's that's exactly right. And uh, uh, by the way, we did read some of the books and articles on uh, Soviet and Russian food uh, when I teamed up with Todd Armstrong. So in China, too, uh, since 1949, that's when the People's Republic of China was founded. Uh, the government tried to, or the party tried to promote a kind of proletarian cuisine. They tried to level up the menu so people would be eating the same kind of plain fare. Uh, so if you pay too much attention, into food that's considered bourgeoisie and that's denounced, basically. Uh, but of course, things are different nowadays. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like,
0: well, that's why I'm, I'm, like I'm that. asking this question. Yeah, right, uh-huh. right, 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 yeah, right. Where the in 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 the Russian case, the Soviets were not terribly successful at destroying these traditions. People continued to try to produce. I guess I would just call it good Russian food in their own kitchens. Was, was that true in? Uh, in China before the 1990s? Were these traditions preserved?
1: Well, um, some of them, I would say, in private homes, but in restaurants, I did see a sort of gap, like between uh, 19 before 1949 and after 1979. Uh, 1979 was the time China was opened up to the outside world again, basically. And of course, uh, with the introduction of consumer goods and you know lifestyle uh, from the West, things are changing. And uh, during my research uh, you know, in restaurants and uh, I interviewed uh, chefs, uh, managers, uh, some of them uh, lived through that period. And uh, they would complain that nowadays the young chefs lack the training they had gone through and it was hard to teach them and because some of the food stuff already disappeared. And some of them, uh, some of the cooking methods, for example, also shifted. Uh, you know, some of that was due to the introduction of modern science because, you know, it was considered not hygienic to produce food uh, in some uh, traditional way. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see. One of the things that happened under the Soviets is that uh, uh, restaurant culture, I think it would, I would call it that, you know, the idea that you might occasionally go to a restaurant to eat was totally destroyed. Uh, in, in the Soviet Union, at least as I knew it, people went to a restaurant about once a year. And it was usually on somebody's birthday because there really weren't any restaurants, so to say. There were places to eat, but they served what I guess I would call Russian fast food. Uh, 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 is that true in China as well before 1979?
1: <laughs> say um, it varies from region to region. Uh, so in my part of China, so close to Shanghai, it's traditionally a more cosmopolitan area, maybe, maybe than some of the inland uh, places. Uh, there was still a variety of restaurants. Some of them, of course, were more, uh, you know, higher class and so forth. But there were a variety of eateries uh, that would provide I guess you can call it fast food, but snacks and things. Um, so a lot of Chinese people still enjoy going to those places, even though they may be... Uh, yeah, that's true in right. Russia
0: as yeah. well. These places yeah. are holdovers from the Soviet period, and they right, still right, are, right. they still, people that are still, they're still right. popular. Yeah, Right, yeah. Um. So then after 1979 and into the 80s, well, in the Russian case, what happened was, is there was this, as I say, efflorescence of of restaurants. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, there were lots of restaurants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, And these traditions were revived. Mm -hmm. I don't know the extent to which the revival was invention, (laughs) or actual (laughs) revival, I have Mm -hmm. no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it became, at least in the big cities in Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, it became a, a thing to go to a restaurant. Did that happen in China as
1: well? Well, since the 1970s, late 1970s, you know, the economic reform uh, took place. So the economy uh, became more market oriented and the government also uh, actively encouraged consumption because they were trying to shift the economy from export driven to more consumption driven. Uh, so, um, of course, uh, the rise of the middle class uh, in the Chinese situation also contributed to that uh, Uh, I guess, uh, restaurant uh, boom. And then uh, in my book, I talked about this idea of hometown food or or the boom of hometown cuisine, uh, which was also part of the food nostalgia uh, movement. And uh, people really wanted to uh, sample what they thought as authentic, traditional food waste that may have been wiped out by the Cultural Revolution. (laughs) And uh, it was, of course, part of... uh, uh, um, to part of the effort to construct the identity, basically uh, in a new era, uh, since the modernization pace was so fast, everybody was feeling a little dizzy and unsure about their place in the world, and also about China's place in the world, basically. And that's why people uh, started to frequenting those restaurants and the businesses. Local governments uh, collaborated, tried to generate this, you know, buzz about good living, you know, cultural capitals, that kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So during this restaurant boom, if we can call it that, mm-hmm. and we will for mm-hmm. shorthand, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did the restaurateurs decide what sorts of restaurants to open? You mentioned food nostalgia. Maybe you mm-hmm. could talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, food now. Nostalgia, I think, was part of a big picture of cultural nostalgia in China. So you can see it everywhere. Like on TV, there were TV dramas about time travel back to the past. Uh, the government promoted a kind of red tourism, what they called, which is to pay uh tribute to pilgrimage sites uh, that uh, played important roles in the communist revolution, like when uh, the communist party had a big uh, conference that played a role in the victory. So uh, their workplaces will organize these tools to take people to these places, you know, to pay tribute. And then uh, in some restaurants, they serve uh, what they call rural food, you know, get to the roots uh, of, of your past and so forth. Uh, so in my part of the country, uh, people basically try to invoke the cultural traditions about good living, gentry living, uh, some of them uh, to play up their uh, connection to the imperial past. Uh, past, Like one city I wrote in my book, Hangzhou, uh, that's the provincial capital of Zhejiang province. Uh, by the way, uh, Xi Jinping used to be the governor of that province a while ago. But that city was the capital of the Southern Sun dynasty in the 12th, 13th century. So the Russian uh, uh, businesses there really wanted people to know they had this connection to the imperial past. Uh, they said they had cuisines that were reproductions of meals consumed by the, you know, royal family and, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And people thought that was fun, you know, it was novel, even though people may not totally believe it. <laughs> you know? so, so that's just an example. And this happened in other places as well, in China. So, mm-hmm. And
0: the Communist Party itself encouraged this sort of thing?
1: Well, they encouraged the business they do not uh, uh, care really <laughs> what you yeah. serve. If, if you can attract customers, if you can raise the profile of your city, they encourage export too, cultural export as well. Uh, so some of the restaurants I interviewed actually uh, got invitations to go abroad to demonstrate their cooking and uh, uh, to uh, help uh, other countries uh, to reconstruct uh, what they ate back then. I, I I'm thinking of this restaurant in Suzhou, uh, which is my hometown uh, in the Jiangsu province, pretty close to Shanghai. It's about like 20 minutes by high speed train to Shanghai. So there's this restaurant that's famous for reproducing the imperial banquets that the emperor of the Qing dynasty which was 18th century he uh, visited this town uh, 6 7 times all the way from beijing that was a big undertaking back then you know he had to ride a boat all the way from beijing down south and uh, they claimed they had uh, revived some of the dishes that the emperor had uh, eaten and uh, you know they put those on the menu uh, for for uh, contemporary audiences they got invited to japan to okinawa Uh, to reconstruct a day called Imperial Banquet that uh, the envoys from Japan used to eat with with the emperor of the Qing dynasty. And it was broadcast on TV and, you know, they published in local uh, media and, you know, uh, which was, of course, uh, helpful for their business and also helpful for the municipal government to raise their GDP and their cultural profile, basically, uh, uh, domestically and abroad.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that you use the word claim. Mm-hmm. They claimed to reproduce <laughs> these imperial banquets. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. To, to what extent should we uh, believe that claim? And how would they know? Are there good records about what these people ate? And did they have the? Did they have this? Did they have the? The skill and the ingredients that they needed to do it?
1: Well, that's really a great <laughs> question. Of course, they said, uh, well, some of those were recorded in history, that's for sure. You, you can go to the Forbidden City and uh, find in the archives what the emperor ate every day because that was on record, right? Uh, but you may not necessarily know how it was cooked or what exactly were the ingredients. And they actually collaborate with some of the scholars or professors at universities, try to reconstruct those. Uh, This happened in Suzhou, uh, also happened in Hangzhou. That's a good
0: job for a historian. Why don't I ever get that job? (laughs)
1: Yeah, and then, uh, of course, they also did their own research. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I went to this Suto Russia, which I mentioned was famous for producing imperial banquets. They served this one dish, uh, which was a fish dish, which was called, uh, um, what's it, squirrel-shaped mandarin fish. So this was a uh, mandarin fish that was deboned, uh, cut into uh, little, uh, well, not cut, completely, but sliced, you know, into uh, pieces and uh, uh, coated with flour and then fried. And then uh, traditionally, or not traditionally, in contemporary restaurants, they usually use some I would say tomato sauce on top of it, just to make it sweet and sour, uh, which is actually a famous uh, signature dish of Suzhou restaurants. But this restaurant, they said they don't use tomato sauce or or, uh, tomato paste or whatever, because tomato was not a native. uh, Yeah, there
0: were no tomatoes when the emperor was eating.
1: (laughs) No, it was was important, basically, from America. Yeah. So what they used was uh, apricot sauce. So it, it it did the same job, but they said apricot was traditional, I and mean, it was you know on record from you know thousands of years ago. Uh, that's why uh, they used apricot instead of tomato. They wanted to show people they were authentic, right? Traditional. They did not use ingredients that were not native to China. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah well yeah I'm I'm very familiar with this we have this even where I live uh Um, locally produced food very big thing here in the United States right now so uh, how expensive is it to eat the emperor's banquet and is it available to ordinary so I want to call the working class or middle class Chinese people can they go eat the emperor's banquet
1: well they could uh, if they could pay
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, how much does it cost
1: um I would say not exorbitantly, actually, considering. Um, So it is uh, trying to uh, market to the middle class Chinese, I would say. Uh, So if you are, say, from the working class or you're a a migrant, you may not be able to afford it. But for middle class family, you could eat it uh, once in a while, maybe not every day. So um, and uh, they also sell the lifestyle, basically, of the aristocracy, uh, because they always advertise this garden-style living because Suzhou is famous for gardens. Those used to be private uh, residences uh, built by um, retired officials and so forth. So they serve the meal in a very nice environment. They wanted to show elegant living, you know, cultural heritages and so on and so forth. So, and of course, there are other uh, variety of dishes that uh, can uh, appeal to mass consumers, not necessarily, you know, the wealthy, uh, because uh, Suzhou is also famous for its uh, soup noodles. So this is basically a street food, but gentrified. uh, So uh, it, it can still be authentic, so to speak, traditional Suzhou meal that people can afford to eat.
0: Yeah. The reason I asked this question is it kind of gets to the further question of um, status and class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every American knows there are some really fancy restaurants that you cannot afford to go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least I can't. Maybe mm-hmm. other people can. Mm-hmm. And then there are other restaurants which you can afford to go to. Is there a similar sort of hierarchy in Chinese restaurants in the place that you studied?
1: Yeah, that's for sure, and uh, I I would say I visit uh, those uh, uh, where middle class and uh, lower class uh, people visit. I don't really go to exclusively uh, five star hotel and you know that kind of uh, restaurant. But there certainly is that hierarchy as well. I think for the ordinary Chinese, uh, you know, uh, now I have to talk about the middle class again uh, because. Uh, I guess uh, middle class is the most anxious of all social classes. They want to climb up. They are afraid to fall back to the working class or lower class bracket. So it is essential for them to consume the right thing, to show people, you know, they are they belong, basically. <laughs> so I think this kind of restaurants really appeal to that anxiety. Uh, so they can help these people perform their identities. They they could eat this particular type of thing. It's not only a material thing. It's not just a symbol of material wealth. It's also a symbol of cultural knowledge, right? So I know this is authentic. I'm a consumer. That means I know, you know, the cultural heritages, traditions, and so forth. That means I'm high class, basically.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I see just what you mean. Yeah. Um, Or is it the case that there are, um, I'm trying to think how best to put this, Mm -hmm. that that who is excluded from this system? I guess that's the, that's, that's my question. Who, who doesn't get to visit these restaurants and who wouldn't visit these restaurants?
1: Yeah, I would also say there's a generational shift as well. Because if you go to what they call the old and the famous restaurants, Laozi uh, in Chinese, those were certified uh, by the Ministry of Commerce as you know, historical brands, basically. And then um, older generations like to go to these restaurants because they, it reminds them of their uh, useful years, they what they used to eat. But for the younger generations, those who are, uh, I would say, millennials or uh, Generation Zs, uh, they may not. Uh, like those restaurants so much because uh, it uh, seems to be too uh, straight laced and you know not not fun basically boring boring and um, really uh, try more fusion cuisine or uh, more Western influence. like uh, Starbucks is really popular in China
0: Starbucks
1: yes it's I don't a- know
0: I don't know whether to be proud of that or not <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and they, they want to try more fun uh, dining style, more entertainment uh, instead of the food itself. So, um, um, of course, the kind of restaurants I featured more in my book uh, really um, um, require a certain amount of, uh, uh, I, I would say, uh, material uh, uh, wealth. Uh, if you Um, have to uh, work for living and uh, your basic scrape by it's hard to frequent those restaurants and um, you probably just cook for yourself basically that's what i do (laughs) i I I cook for
0: myself (laughs) i can't remember the last time i was in a restaurant um i had takeout a few times but not i don't go to restaurants really um in the in the american market especially in big cities there's tremendous turnover or churn in the restaurant industry. A restaurant will start. It will be popular. It will last eight years, and then it goes away, and a new one pops up. Is that true in the place that you studied?
1: Well, uh, some of the restaurants actually are historic, uh, historical brands. So they've been there for many years, even maybe before the communist revolution. Uh, At least they try to. Yeah, they try to reclaim that brand. The location may have been changed because of, you know, uh, expansion of the urban space and road build, building and so on and so forth. But they wanted to hold on to that brand. Uh, some of the uh, um, uh, restaurants uh, are, I, I guess, more fashionable in a way. And then, of course, uh Due to the pandemic, lots of them had uh, uh, downturns because, you know, uh, it was forbidden to uh, die in. Yeah, what
0: did they do during, I mean, uh, there was a tremendous lockdown. Yes. I don't know if it's still going on. And that must have been very hard on the restaurant industry. It was here. Exactly.
1: And I know uh, some of the restaurants I uh, uh, did my field work in uh, turned to uh, uh, takeouts. So you could order uh, using an app and then they deliver uh, so That's how they try to get by. But it is hard because uh, China still goes into frequent lockdowns. If there's like one case then everybody is in lockdown and the restaurants are not allowed to have dining guests, they can do takeouts. That's that's it for some of the smaller businesses. It's, it's extremely difficult to survive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this environment. So
0: So do do people go to these heritage restaurants um, as a matter of course, or do they only go on special occasions, somebody's birthday or something to celebrate or something like that? That's
1: a great question. I would say it attracts uh, tourists uh, a lot from outside of town. Uh, So. Uh, you know, it's a brand, right? So it's a quick way for them to get a taste of the local flavor, so to speak. And for the locals, uh, I know in Suzhou there are some restaurants who are famous for birthday celebrations because of auspicious sounding name, basically. And they do serve uh, more traditional dishes that appeal to uh, older generations. And some of them are famous for weddings, for example. Uh, it also uh, has a lot to do with like parking space, <laughs> you know, all these other
0: things. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Not related to food yeah. yeah so so that is true for that uh, type of restaurants so another type of restaurants you know that are basically snack shops uh serving noodles and um, I don't know um uh, dumplings and that sort of thing. Those are for everyday consumption. You can just go by and, you know, uh, eat something on the go and, and leave. So uh, that's also popular. And uh, there are also restaurants that are housed in those uh, high-rise uh, department stores. Uh, in China, they don't usually have malls because there's not so much space. You cannot spread out. They just do one in a big uh, high-rise and, you know, the restaurants and shops and Uh, Even movie cinemas you can go to. So you go to those places to eat as well. And some of them are chain restaurants. Uh, They claim to be uh, traditional food. uh, But of course, it's already uh, uh, modified to suit modern tastes.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It used to be the case. I'm 60 years old. So I remember when, and I grew up in the Midwest, when to go to a restaurant was kind of a big deal and you dressed up. Mm -hmm. Like you, you actually put your, what we called Sunday go to meeting clothes on, like you'd go to church in these clothes too, but you would dress up to go to, do people dress up to go to these restaurants?
1: Well, for some traditional brands, maybe a little bit, uh, but not uh, totally uh, in nowadays. Uh, so for... Yeah, well, now
0: nobody does that in America even. It's like, you know, yeah, <laughs>
1: well, for snack shops, no, no, nobody does that. You know, you can just go in, and especially for younger generation. And uh, they, they use their phone so much. They maybe take a few pictures, post them on Instagram. Well, not Instagram, in China, WeChat, basically with their friends and you know and then go away and actually that's one of the complaints i heard from one of the uh, famous noodle restaurant in Hangzhou. Uh, this was a manager of that restaurant and he was complaining that younger generations really not do not care about food they just want entertainment uh, they just want to go to a fashionable place uh, snap a few uh, pictures and that's it <laughs> so nice. uh, yeah
0: so uh, I'm interested in the restaurant tours. I've worked in kitchens. Actually, I did one a long time ago. Um, and what would a middle class Chinese father and mother say to a kid who said, I'm going to go open a restaurant? My career huh? choice is restaurants. Oh. I'm going to go into <laughs> restaurants.
1: <laughs> what would they say about that? I don't think they would take it very kindly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chinese parents uh, usually are very ambitious for their kids. Uh, they want their kids realize the dreams they themselves did not fulfill in their youth. So they have the kids have to study hard. They have to do cram school uh, after regular uh, you know school days, and then. Um, uh, Actually, restaurant work, uh, traditionally, I think still is considered as more uh, working class. Uh, you know, uh, we do have some celebrity uh, chefs now, uh, you know, but uh, not not so much, uh, not even uh, to the same extent as it happens here in the United States. I think. Uh, interview a chef. This was a famous chef from Hangzhou restaurant. I asked him, uh, do you want your daughter to be a chef? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard work. It's a lot
0: of work. yeah." yeah.
1: Much. And uh, he wanted his daughter to be a white collar worker, you know, to, to get paid more and uh, uh, for a better uh, working environment, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. So, are there culinary schools in China? I'm sure there are. Yeah, there are, yeah, uh, there are,
1: yeah. there are occupational education, uh, so it's not the same here. Say, here you have like culinary institutions in uh, America and so on and so forth, but in China, it's not as glamorous, I oh. would say. Uh, yeah.
0: so, I see what you mean. Uh, so, yeah. uh, these, uh, these. Um, Nostalgia restaurants or heritage restaurants. Has there been any attempt on the part of the Chinese entrepreneurs to enter the American market or any other market? in the hopes that maybe Americans would love this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, some of them actually tried. Uh, I know there's this hot pot chain in China. Uh, Maybe there are two already. Uh, One of them was Haidi Lao. It was actually quite uh, popular outside of China, Uh, not not just in Hong Kong, uh, in other East Asian countries. And I think they tried to open one in uh, California. Uh, I don't know how successful it is now because of the pandemic, Uh, but it was quite successful for a while. This was a couple of years back before the pandemic broke out. So, um, um, you know, they they did try to appeal to American audiences. Some of the dishes Chinese people love may not be as popular here. Uh, Like people here don't want fish with bones or skins. and They don't want chicken feet or, you know, any organs (laughs) and so forth. But some of these are considered galaxies Well, Chinese uh, palate, right? So, how about actually uh, goes over pretty well, I would say, all over the world. Yeah,
0: so. yeah. Well, I grew up eating liver, so oh, okay. I'm from the Midwest, though, so liver's just fine with me. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, some of the proprietors of these restaurants have been to the United States, and what do they think about uh, the state of American Chinese food? Do, do well, they have any opinions on that? they normally
1: don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> they don't consider it Chinese food, uh, basically. And uh, this is no judgment on, um, uh, you know, Chinese restaurants here in the United States, because they have to adapt to local tastes, obviously, and there are some classic dishes that everybody considers, you know, to go to uh, in uh, here, and uh, that's part of immigration uh, history, Yeah, basically.
0: General Gao's chicken. I don't think, I think exactly. that's a totally General American French. thing.
1: <laughs> no, it's (laughs) It's American. Uh, It was invented by a Taiwan chef in New York City. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I think uh, this was actually helpful for the cultural pride. I interviewed one of the restaurant uh, managers who actually visited the United States and uh, Canada to to demonstrate basically cooking. And uh, she said this really uh, gave her uh, a good feeling about Chinese cuisine. Because uh, (laughs) even though uh, America was very famous for you know, technology and the science, and all these advancement, in, uh, Chinese people really know how to eat.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I told you is that I spent a couple of summers teaching students from the People's Republic of China, and I asked them what they thought about uh, Chinese food in America. And they said they thought it was okay, um, but what they were very insistent about was that McDonald's in China was much better
1: than <laughs> McDonald's <laughs> I, in the United States. I, 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 <laughs> I hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's also adapted, uh, you know, to Chinese tastes. They they serve Chinese desserts, basically, that you cannot get uh, in the United States. And they have like this... Uh, I don't know spicy chicken patty, uh, whatever uh, hamburger that people really love there. That's what people say. That's yeah.
0: That they were very insistent, but they were very disappointed by American (laughs) (laughs) McDonald's. I thought it was terrible.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's actually part of my uh, Chinese food course. You know about fast food in China, (laughs) American fast food in China.
0: So, so are there other? And this is not related to your book, but I'm just interested. Are there other? Are there particularly popular sorts of American fast food? In China? Are there ones that people really love?
1: Uh, I think Kentucky Fried Chicken is actually more popular than McDonald's. Kentucky Fried Chicken. chicken. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I'm talking about fast food uh, chicken. But Starbucks is still very popular in China. And uh, some people say they like steak, but it's not the kind of steak you get here. It's like cooked the Chinese way with lots more sauces and a smaller portion.
0: So, again, this is just a demonstration of my ignorance. We have this category in the United States, Chinese food, which is kind of a ridiculous category. Let's admit it. There's a lot of kinds of Chinese food. Do Chinese people have a category, American food?
1: Well, I think they associate like fast food, uh, McDonald's, <laughs> with American brand, uh, because they don't know much, right? About yeah. food, uh, like Midwestern Fair, they may not have uh, yeah. had it. So
0: Great. <laughs> America's great contribution to world cuisine. Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's. <laughs> That's very funny. Well, it's been really enjoyable talking to you. We have a kind of traditional final question on the New Books Network and that is, um, what are you working on now? What is your current project?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm working on uh, something else in addition to Chinese food. I'm still in conversations with uh, practitioners and uh, researchers of Chinese foodways, obviously. I actually recently, uh, just last. November published an article as a follow up to my book, which is about uh, female Chinese restaurant managers. They were not chefs, uh, they were basically uh, administrators, uh, but it was a, a fun article to write uh, to get to interview these women again and uh, talk about their experiences, which was not featured very much in my book. And I did a roundtable on Chinese food with about teach Chinese food uh, in the United States uh, this January with a group of scholars, both here and in China and Australia and so forth. It's online, so it's doable. And I am actually currently working on the institutionalization of creative writing in China. This was really about how Chinese intellectuals and writers adapted American model of creative teaching, creative writing, the Iowa Writing Workshop. Uh, international writing program. So I'm very interested in uh, learning what they actually uh, kept, what they changed to suit Chinese needs. And why was it so popular all of a sudden in China? This was a new phenomenon. Uh, The first MFA in creative writing uh, came about uh, around 2009. So it was about a decade or so ago, but more than a hundred writing programs sprung up in China ever since then. Yeah, so I'm interested in knowing uh, why did they adopt this model? What they changed? What it meant for, for Chinese cultural production, and how that uh, is related to their own identity and so on and so forth. And my tentative title is still a food metaphor: uh, American as apple pie. Uh, this, this is <laughs> with a question mark. Was a question mark? Yeah. yeah it's uh, because very good. It's, this is a tribute to the book written by Mark McGill, uh, who wrote about the Iowa Writer's Workshop and other writing programs. Uh, the title of his book is American as Apple Pie, because he, he thought it was a unique American contribution, uh, you know, the coupling of the profession of authorship and institution of higher education. China is trying to go the same route, basically, to hire professional writers to come into uh, universities, uh, colleges to teach creative writing, which was not done in the past. So that's what I'm working on right now. Well, it sounds
0: fascinating, and we'll have to have you on again when that book is done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. Let me tell everyone we've been talking with Jin Feng of Grinnell College today about her book. Tasting Paradise on Earth. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode of Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. I hope everybody has a great week. Bye, Jen.
1: All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.